Oh, hey, Emma. So uh, what's your biggest bugbear about entering into paid for IVF so far? Well, Gabby, I'd say the complete lack of clarity over costs. Well, my friend, let me introduce you to Gaia. By crunching your vital stats, it can predict how many rounds you will need and provide you with a fixed cost. Gaia Insurance means that if you don't have a child, you'll pay a fraction of the price typically associated with IVF, and we know that's a lot. And if you do, you can pay for your treatment in monthly instalments. Yeah. In addition to fixing the costs, they partner with fertility clinics across the UK so they can pay up front on their members' behalf, meaning that the relationship between members and their clinics is purely care-based. They remove the financial stress of paying in-clinic. I mean, I can't think of anything worse than finding out a round has failed and then having to whip out my credit card. Mm, big salty tears dripping off the Barclays card. Rubbish. Interested? Visit www.gaiafamily.com, create an account and get your personalised prediction or email lucy at gaia.family to speak to someone on the team. Hello. You're listening to BFN. This is the podcast about infertility, IVF, and the trials of trying for a baby. I'm Gabby. And I'm Emma. And we're both card-carrying members of the Infertility Club. expecting us today were you well i was going to say hello to you oh hello (laughs) you were expecting me today i was expecting you today but i was going to feign surprise okay (laughs) here we are yeah we're here for a very special bonus episode aren't we we are here for a very special bonus episode um this episode is all about financing ivf and it's sponsored by gaia Who's Gaia, Gabs? Well, Emma, let me tell you. Um, Gaia is basically a new way to pay for IVF. It is an insured financial plan, allowing you to pay a fraction of your total cost of treatment if you are unsuccessful, and monthly if you are successful, which, to be honest, sounds like a dream. Cool. So we've got a special panel session today, haven't we, Gabs? Yeah, yeah. So many people, it was amazing. (laughs) So we're speaking to... Nada Al-Salim, who's the CEO of Gaia. We're also speaking to... Whitney and Megan Bacon-Evans, aka Wagon. We are talking to Alex Holder, who's a journalist and an author. We are indeed, and, and, and we, we are talking. <laughs> we, we are also talking. We, yeah. we also talk. <laughs> um, I think um, paying for IVF, the cost of IVF, uh, saving for IVF, all of these things are such big subjects for, for everyone um, once they've had, if they've even had access to NHS funding, you know, it's it's such a big topic and something that people get in touch with us all the time about. So we're really pleased to be able to do a bonus episode on it. Yes, I am finding it particularly important at the moment. Yes, you are. Because I'm in the middle of a round I am in the throes. Oh my god! And Emma, what's your uh, what's your biggest takeaway so far of uh, paying for your IVF? Do you know what? I just feel like well, I've got two key takeaways. Key takeaway number one: my clinic has been really bad at managing my expectations about how much I'm going to pay. Mm. So here's what happened: I emailed them and I said I'm ready to do my next round, and they said, "Brilliant! That will be fifteen hundred quid." 
and I say, right, I'm going to take a couple of months to get on the folic acid because I expected to be waiting eight to 12 weeks, right? And they were like, no, we can fit you in next Tuesday. And I was like, oh, shit. Mm, yeah. So we wait a few weeks. Suddenly the price has gone up to 1600 oh, quid shit. because they've changed their prices. Um, and then I go in for my first... Oh, then they're like... Um, you've got to pay for an initial consultation. That'll be £250. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll pay for an initial consultation. And then they're like, oh, and um, obviously you've got to have a scan. That's going to be another £100. But I obviously only find out that out when an invoice comes. Then there's this cancellation fee that suddenly appears out of nowhere that they're like, um, when I'm when I'm paying for it, there's a little box that's like, we agree to a cancellation fee of between 300 and 600 pounds. Like, I haven't heard of that. No one said anything about that to me. Like, I'm not agreeing to that until somebody lays it out. So I literally phone them and demand them that they explain. Because my body, like, is historically not great with IVF. So I'm fully expecting to just have to cancel a bunch of rounds. Um, And then there's the drugs, right? So I've I, I don't know how much the drugs are. Nobody there will tell me how much the drugs are. So everyone I speak to is like, oh yeah, IVF drugs, they're about a grand. So I budget a grand. Guess how much they are? 150 quid, which is great. Like I'm happy that they're 150 quid and not two grand, but still like it's wreaking havoc with my budget. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, this is coming from you who has saved money specifically for this event. Like there are so many people out there who haven't been able to do that yet, who are facing IVF for the first time and they're like, how the fuck are we going to pull all this money together? It's a real fucking doozy. And that is underplaying the statement. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the sensation of pissing money away without anything Mm. to show for it is as bad as I expected. Also, we're like four days into this cycle now, right? My my first go at the second baby. And I just feel like this. Thanks, mate. I feel like there's so much pressure on this. And I'm the one that's putting pressure on me. But if it doesn't work, it's just so expensive. And it just makes me feel really stressed. It's like a double whammy. So it's like, oh, it hasn't worked. That's devastating. Also, by the way, you're going to have to pay again. (gasps) Yeah, basically. It's really fucking shit, actually. Yeah, it's it's not much fun. I'm kind of it's it's one of the many reasons that I haven't gone back into IVF again for another one. Um, I mean, there are lots of reasons why I'm still on the fence, but obviously, cost is a big one of them because it's just something that other people don't have to think about when they're like, "Oh, should I have another one or not?" They don't have to think about how much is it going to cost to create it. Yeah, and obviously, I'm in the privileged position of having embryos to transfer. Mm, yeah, of course. Um, which means. Yeah, that we don't have to um, do stims again. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, if we did it again, we'd have to do PGD, which costs even yeah. more. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's not very good. It's not a very good situation. And why we are have created this bonus episode. Um, and yeah, um, guys, we hope you enjoy it. I hope it's really useful. Um, and um, yeah, you take away a lot of it from it. Yeah, and at the end, we've got. IVF what the F, but we don't have Professor Tim, do we? No, we don't have Professor Tim. We have Lucy from Gaia, who will be answering the question, what are the hidden costs and how can you ascertain the real cost of IVF? Which I think is the uh, million dollar question of the hour. (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, So please enjoy this episode. Do. If you have any questions... Mm -hmm. 
you can email us bigfatnegativepodcast at gmail.com you can instagram us at bigfatnegative you can find us on twitter at bigfatnegative please enjoy this episode enjoy it guys Hello everyone, what a glorious group of people to have gathered today. Guys, in, in, in two minutes each, um, can you tell us about your journeys? And let's start with you, Alex. Okay, um, so my journey started at 35. Um, I started trying for my second child. and One year later, I still wasn't pregnant. So I went to my local GP and obviously they couldn't do anything because it was secondary infertility. And then... I paid £250 for a meeting in a London clinic um, and was basically just told to keep trying. And paying for that first meeting was a real emotional hurdle for me. It kind of, it was the moment I realized I might have to pay for something that I had always thought of as being free, you know, trying for a Mm. baby. And then Mm. in the end, after years of trying, we had three egg collections and two transfers in a clinic in Lisbon, Portugal, where it was remarkably cheaper I'd say half the price of what we'd researched in London um the first ended first transfer ended in a chemical pregnancy and the second one is now my one-year-old daughter and we chose that clinic mainly actually because of it had a downloadable pdf price list where I could see everything and they explained costs really clearly and they also included ICSI that wasn't an add-on. It was kind of part of the package and we were borderline male factor. And it was very handy to, I'm going straight into the money bit, but to have those conversations about add-ons without it being about money, it was kind of, it was purely based on the outcome and purely based on whether the doctor and the embryologist thought we should have it seen. We did it with half of our eggs um, and half we didn't. So yeah, that's, that's my journey. And now because of going through IVF and because I talk about money, and transparency a lot I guess I'm on a small mission to get people talking about the costs of fertility treatment which is why I'm here with you guys today brilliant thank you so much Alex I'm going to come to you Whitney and Megan well we've been together for 14 years and always knew we wanted children um, but it was until like 2020 that we decided that we were officially ready to embark on our baby journey. But as a same-sex female couple, we were like, cool, so what does that involve? We have no idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, there was really a lack of information online, lack of resources. Our GP literally didn't know how to help us. So we were kind of in the dark and just trying to document our journey for our followers to help them as well. And then as we were kind of going through all the different areas, um, we discovered there were barriers in place, and not only barriers, but also discrimination. So um, whilst trying to obviously embark on our baby journey ourselves, we also decided to try and fight for fertility equality. And we started with a petition in November 2020, and then we launched legal action in November 2021. And then um, today, the government has just announced that there will no longer be barriers for same-sex female couples to create their family, which is absolutely amazing. I mean, We're very happy today. <laughs> it's <laughs> the best news ever. <laughs> yes. <Yeah, so, laughs> um, massive coincidence that we've got you today as well. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I'm just glad we've got someone to speak to you about it all today, to be honest, because we just like, we can't sit still. So no, we need to start buzzing yeah. today. <laughs> So it's a very uh, momentous day in our household today. It is, absolutely. And congratulations. We will talk about this a bit more um, later on, but but thank you. And Nada, next to you. Um, hi. Um, so I, I think um, 
our journey started in, in 2012. We, we got married in 2012. We were both 30 at the time. And, you know, as many couples do, we spent a couple of years um, together and we decided we had a chat in 2015, three years into the marriage about having, having, having our first child, thinking like most people do, it's a, it's a, it's a light switch away. I think it just oh, works yeah. like, it works <laughs> like magic. Um, and it turned out that it doesn't, and we know that the hard way. So the journey in total took about four years, including the year or so that we tried naturally. Um, we skipped the queue because um, of timing and we went directly privately. Um, we started in a London clinic, which was one of the biggest that we did not like because of the, I think because of the size, it just felt a little bit very impersonal. Hmm. And, and then we switched to another clinic, which is also absence based on word of mouth. And, you know, you start asking people, what do they have better experienced? And then we switched and then that clinic had sort of multiple locations. So I think in totality it took us four years, really five, um, we got pregnant on the fifth round of IVF, um, which is, which is now a three-year-old boy. Um, thank you, but there was there was four failed rounds before across three clinics in two countries, and a total spend of about fifty thousand um, pounds, which which is a lot clearly. But I always I always say it, and I feel very fortunate that there is at least something to show um, to show for it at the end of the journey, which comes in the form of of of, of the son that we have, and many people unfortunately don't don't go there. Yeah, we've got friends who've um, who've kind of gone into the six figures before they've had anything to show for it, which is insane. Um, Alex, I mean, you know, you kind of talked a little bit about how it, it you know, excited you were to not excited, but interested you were to see, um, yeah. like how clear the downloadable PDF was. It's such a basic thing. Um, obviously, like as many of our listeners know, I'm just going into my first go at paid for IVF. Um, what I mean, what do I what do I need to look out for, and what kind of you know annoyed you the most? The op- opaqueness annoyed me the most. The amount of questions I had to ask until I got an answer. I felt um, when I spoke to some London clinics, I was made to feel quite stupid because I couldn't get you know I'd kind of ask and ask and be like but what is included? And often, you know, people will talk about, they'll talk about the total cost, yet that won't include the anesthetic that puts you under for egg collection, which for most people isn't an optional add-on. You know, it's an absolute necessity and is quite a few hundred pounds. So yeah, I think oh my God. it's quite wild that obviously there is a price out there. They know the price. They know what they're going to co- charge you, but they 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 find they find it difficult to communicate it with you, and often that conversation is just it's in a really it's a really hard conversation to have, and it's often with a doctor in a very high stakes meeting in itself. Yeah, uh, uh, like you know, one of the things that I've had to do um, like a thousand times is email them and ask them how much my drugs are going to cost. I budgeted a thousand pounds for for drugs for an embryo transfer because I just had no clue. Um, it cost 150 pounds, but they refused to give me even a ballpark figure. Just maddening. Um, Nada, is this something? Is this something that you hear a lot about from your clients? Like, are you hearing a lot of people complaining about a lack of transparency? Um, I would have, I would have 100 agree with with Alex. I think the most frustrating thing is like everything is opaque, right? Pricing, chances, decisions, quality. And to Alex's point, like you're quoted a price up front, but not told that medication, scans, blood work were separate. Like why? Like do you it is wild, that's the right word. Like, do you ever get caught a course of chemotherapy without the drugs? 
Um, it, it just doesn't happen in any part of healthcare. It's one price, it's all inclusive. And then the other piece to, to, to the opaqueness is not really price versus cost. I mean, imagine how low is the bar that Alex's decision was function of a PDF that if you download it just because someone told you the price. <laughs> it is really such a low bar to, to, to It doesn't to take <laughs> but, but even, even the opaqueness that surrounds decision making, if I tell you, if, if I tell any of our members that they have 40 eggs, do you think people know that's too little or too many? Um, right. Is that an indicator that you probably were, I don't know, hyperstimulated? If I tell you your AMH is 18, it's like, is that okay? Like it's that opaqueness that surrounds the total experience from a medical perspective, but also like mm -hmm. how do we contextualize data for members? It's mm -hmm. extremely important because it, and that brings into a clarity. And what we need to do a little bit more is to educate people on the basics because there is a huge difference here between how, how much things cost and how much the price is. And the, mm -hmm. the cost and the price are not necessarily synonymous here because I can give you a list, like I can give you a list of prices of all things that we offer. If you don't know what that means to you, in your case, in your instance, I've also yeah. given you, um, and, and your point about medication is case in point. Um, medication ranges between 500 and 2000 and it's, it's a wild range. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. Um, yeah, and the eggs thing is an interesting point. Like, um, I remember talking to Professor Tim for our book and he quoted some statistics on egg numbers and it was about chances of success after you get a certain amount, I think it's 15 eggs, and how it declines actually after you get a certain number of eggs for many different reasons. That doesn't mean if you've got more than 15 eggs, you have less of a chance of conceiving, by the way, just for any listeners who are concerned, but it just means that it doesn't necessarily go up massively after that. But, um, it, you know, obviously you don't have access to that research. You have to speak to, like have a nice hour long phone chat with a fertility doctor for a book that you're writing to get that information. And mm. um, so that's, you know, that's a really interesting point. Um, Whitney and Megan, talk to us a little bit more about the unfairness. Did you, before you embarked on your journey, did you have any idea about this? And can you also give us a, an idea of what the typical same-sex journey was like? You know, we've obviously had some great news today, but yesterday, what was the <laughs> typical journey like? And to be fair, until April 2023, right? Okay, yeah. Is, is that a date? We haven't been told a date. So if you've heard, that's good. As far that... as I could read, it seemed like it was April 2023, but I'm glad yeah. that it's so transparent. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've been waiting for that date. So if that's so, the case, then when... wonderful. You know, it might have been like 2050. But... <laughs> I mean, that's positive. Um, yeah, so when we embarked on our baby journey, we initially thought we could do home insemination. And that's what I think a lot of our followers thought they could do. Yeah, it all started, we worked with this amazing company called Mosey Baby. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but it's basically a home insemination kit. And then, you know, as soon as we absolutely got our hearts sold on it, we came, someone, they let us know that home insemination is actually, was actually banned in the UK in 2005, if you're purchasing sperm from a sperm bank, which we did, we got our sperm mm -hmm. international. So therefore that instantly you know pushed us down the private clinic route and took away that moment that we could have shared together so that essentially was what kicked everything off and then from there it was a rabbit hole of barriers discrimination and considering it was 2020 at the time i mean how could these things be in place and it'd be 2020 if marriage is legal you know in the eyes of the law for the lgbtq community so why doesn't it transfer to the fertility sector 
and then from that, I mean, yeah, Megan, you can you can take it from here because the list really does go on and on. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, you know, personally, we were disheartened to be forced into a clinical setting when we really wanted to try at home mm. first, you know. In our eyes, mm-hmm. equivalent to a straight couple trying at home before they then decide or realise that there's obviously an issue and you need to go to a fertility clinic. Um, so obviously at that stage, we have no idea if we have any fertility issues or not. But all we do know for sure is together we cannot naturally create a child, which no matter how much we try, <laughs> try <many> times, <laughs> but, you know, it's sad. We wish we could naturally create yes. a child. Um, so we are in that sense de facto infertile. Um, but it was then that we were looking into the requirements on the NHS in England as to what uh, makes you eligible to receive um, fertility treatments on the NHS is when we realise that there really is also discrimination in place, not just like barriers, but discrimination. Um, my sister is straight and she'd been through IVF. So I knew already that the requirement for straight couples was two years of unprotected sex, which obviously is is a long wait and it's, it has its emotional toll and it's not going to be a pleasant journey. Mm. Uh, but there's no evidence required. And not only is there no evidence required, I mean, what would the evidence be? But just saying there's no evidence required. <laughs> Shudder to think. Then <laughs> yeah. um, there's no financial cost involved in that as such. So um, what it comes down to is the unfair financial burden that is placed on the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. This has been coined as like the gay tax. So to put this in perspective, to um, be on a, like a level playing field, to reach the same point as a heterosexual couple who have tried for two years and then will receive help in the NHS. The same-sex female couple will have to self-fund between six to 12 rounds of artificial insemination in order to prove that they are infertile, even though we cannot create a child together anyway, um, which we're looking at, as we've already talked about costs, about 25 to 50K normally, roughly, which the majority of people don't just have saved for a rainy day. So No, no you don't find that down the back of the couch. No, and it's not information that's really readily available we didn't realize this and you know we're in our 30s been married a few years been together for 14 years if someone had told us this a decade ago then okay great but we're just found out now and, and same for our followers a lot of them have bought a house or spent 10k on a wedding say and then they now realize wait i've just spent the baby fund now mm-hmm. what gonna mm-hmm. do so yeah that's what kicked it all off essentially yeah <laughs> we also show. know people who are in the six figures as well yeah. and sadly they don't have a child and they're mm. in and it's a very, very sad situation. And equally, if they already knew they had infertility Exa- exactly. issues, they've been told they still need to self-fund it to prove it. Yeah, R- ridiculous stuff, yeah. ridiculous stuff. And so you launched a campaign, which obviously um, has, I'm sure, played a huge part in, in the news that we've heard today. Um, you perhaps haven't had a chance to think about this yet, but does the campaign continue? Do you, know, do you have more to do? Mm. there's always more to do and there's always a fight for fertility equality or equality for the lgbtq plus community in general because obviously this is just a very small part of it we're talking about same-sex female couples obviously we need to make sure it does actually come into place which we are hoping they're going to do i mean Mm. side note the government did email their press release to our law firm therefore we think that's a good sign that's a good sign (laughs) they wanted us to know wanted them to know so that's good news um yeah but then there's also still discrimination when it comes to shared motherhood for same-sex female couples um we still have to pay like a screening fee i think it's two thousand pounds because one of us is donating our eggs to our partner but when it's the same when it's a straight couple the they don't have to pay for that so that's this race even though we're a married couple yeah um and then obviously there's also when it comes down to surrogacy so um obviously particularly Mm. for gay male couples here there's absolutely Mm. like no help in place i think nhs scotland helped one gay couple 
really it. oh wow so at least one got helped but um <laughs> yeah there's a long way to go for them and obviously we know the cost of surrogacy are, are like probably minimum starting out 50k yeah um, unfortunately we can only kind of fight our own battle but we will try of course to champion everyone else and obviously that it comes down to trans men and women where do they fall in the equation um and also single women regardless of sexual orientation they as far as aware they haven't been mentioned in this women's health strategy that's been launched today so they fall into the same category as us they always had to prove six to 12 rounds of iui as well so we don't know now if they've been mm. left behind which we really hope they haven't and we'll try and push yeah, absolutely and i mean before we move on how how have people in the past paid for all of this like talking about your friends other people in the community stories you're aware of where are people getting the money that they need to get to that threshold yeah a lot of them have managed to maybe self-fund three rounds of IUI but they can't get to the six rounds that's required or they certainly can never get to 12 rounds mm. essentially you know no one's really going to go through 12 rounds of IUI that would just be ridiculous really to spend that amount of money on it you're going to at some point go okay let's move to IVF clearly it's not happening um, it is 12 rounds in, in our local area at the moment. So we know we would have never funded 12 rounds. Mm. Um, but people have said to us they've had to cut down on food. They, they've mm. had to cut down on gas and electricity. Um, you know, the types of yeah. things that you should never have to cut down on in order no. to family. Basics. And then with the living, you know, cost of the living wage going up and all that, it's just, uh, yeah, this news today has definitely made a lot of people cry. Happy tears <laughs> is wonderful. Um, and it's amazing because there's so many fam- so many followers who said they thought they would never be able to create a family in today wow. to change their life. And it's just so emotional. Guys, no, it is. It's a big day. Congratulations. How amazing. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so glad we've got you on today. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Alex and Nada, actually, but I'll start with Alex. Um, you you went abroad. I mean, you know, from a kind of funding point of view, how how much did you save? And was your decision-making all driven by money or was there other kind of I- ideas behind that? Um, so for me, it wasn't entirely money. I, I moved to Portugal. Um, I guess that move was kind of prompted, though, by our infertility we kind of had to look at our lifestyle and it it made us feel quite unhealthy you know you you're having all these tests and in fact my partner's sperm did his results got better when we moved here so I don't know maybe there is something in the water um but it was also driven by knowing there was no way we could afford to live in London and fund fertility treatment at the same time um and I from research and talking to friends um, and comparing prices with different people, we paid, I think it was about 50% less in, in total for three rounds of egg collection um, and freezing and all the drugs and the transfers. It was, and also the investigative, um, you know, the when they shoot, die up you, all of that kind of thing. All of that included was about £15,000. Nada, when we spoke um, before this call, we um, one of the things that you said indicated to me that you thought it was quite unfair that some people have to go abroad, but I, I hadn't realised that you'd gone abroad. So talk to me about that. Yeah, that, I, I do agree on the first bit. I think it, it, it's widely unfair to ask people to move a country in order to pursue treatment at to, to say thirty percent of cost, and you're uprooting. And it's not this is not something that's done in a couple of hours and you move home, right? This is a process that involves days and days and weeks of preparation and, and going through so I, I do think it's unfair and to be very transparent like money was not a factor in us going um, abroad um, okay 
this is very simplistically, you're in this sort of IVF casino and you're on the same machine and the, and the machine is not yielding your jackpot and you think that if you change, you'll get a better outcome because you're playing a game of inflated expectations and emotional lottery. And sometimes, and even for very rational people, um, changing the scenery or thinking that expecting a different result at the same clinic is probably not very um, counterintuitive. So you end up doing the small things that will mentally increase the margin of success because what you're doing is you're, beat, you're trying to beat odds that you, you don't understand. And if that sometimes means changing the brick and mortar of where you actually perform the treatment, um, and it gives you like just a tiny bit of a glimmer of hope or maybe a different set of expectations of scenery, um, and generally, um, I, 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 it does sound very irrational, especially if you know me, but I think, uh, <laughs> but I think that was the driver. It wasn't really like a cost arbitrage to be very transparent. I feel like half of the stuff that we do, it's not rational when you're trying for a baby. Uh, Alex, I kind of wanted to, to ask you about, you know, this kind of camp, this mission that you're on to, uh, to get people to talk money about this. Why do you want people to talk about this stuff? And what, what do you want to happen? So I'm a big believer that talking about money can um, help change a lot of things. Like conversation is how we connect to other humans. If I'm stressed about most things in my life, I turn to friends for a conversation or to, I talk to my partner. And yet for many years, I started to notice that money was always, I, I, you know, I avoided that subject, even though it was one of the greatest stresses in my life and it dictated where I lived and where I worked and what I wear. Um, so I'm a big believer that talking about money is really helpful. When it comes to money and fertility, you know, with IVF, it combines two taboo subjects, fertility and money. And most people find talking about their fertility, especially if they're going through a difficult journey, um, it, it's really hard. And then we're socialized not to talk about money. And then these two things together, like if you're finding it hard to talk about them, you're definitely not alone. It's really difficult. Um, we know IVF is an emotional trauma. We know it's a physical trauma. But if you're getting into debt to, to go through IVF, if you're finding it really difficult to find the money, if you're spending a life-changing amount, then it's also a financial trauma. And I guess the worst thing about all of you know the taboo is that it means that people don't share. People don't seek advice. That like conversation is how we um, share information. And if you're going to make informed choices about the treatment you have, you're going to have to have quite a few difficult conversations, both with your clinic, clinics, with your partner. You're going to have to have lots of open conversations about money and boundaries and um, expectations. And I think it's really helpful if you can also have those conversations with family and friends and ask people who have gone through it, how did you pay for it? How much did you spend? Because sometimes just a few data points of kind of family and friends and what they've spent and how they paid for it. It's immensely helpful going in to those first conversations with your clinic or making, Absolutely. you know, making plans for your own journey. Yeah. It's a bit like um I've just started to to try and get an extension. And um I like we've got architects plans, but I have no idea how much it's gonna cost and he refuses to give me any idea. So we're just having to like go around friends and be like, what do you think of this? How much is this going to cost? Like, do you think a four meter wall of glass is doable or? I think this is the first time we've actually talked about money on on BFN, right? In six Probably, yeah. seasons. Yeah. yeah. So like, you know, Alex, what? how did you fund your IVF then? Let's get really personal. Um, I funded it through 
like personal savings. I didn't have to go into debt. I was really lucky with that. Um, I worked throughout it, so I didn't take any leave. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, you know, we're not married and there's no wedding on the horizon. Ultimately, there's other things that have had to go for it. But I was really lucky. I was able to afford it and it not to impact my life in, you know, a huge okay. way. Mm. But I've seen, I was chatting to someone the other day who it hasn't worked for them. And on the day they had a miscarriage from one of their rounds and literally on that due date of that baby, they're still, they got a credit card bill because they had that round on credit card, you know, and that's how, yeah, dark and scary it can be with IVF and money. Nada, how can we prevent that kind of thing from happening? Like, how can we stop clinics from being like that? I, I, um... I wanted to stop at one thing, which is just a, a comment so that we don't all. Um, I also do think that in this country, we have a weird relationship with uh, with money and talking about money. Um, and it doesn't extend to your architect um, code and it doesn't extend to your health. It's generally, um, and I hope we can we can be in a place where we just normalize this, especially on something where, because what Megan and, 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 and Whitney were saying is, it's more in the in the case of a queer and same sex. It's more accurate. Like, like the word fertility treatment. Like, what are they treated for? I mean, most of the cases you're actually treated for nothing. There's no treatment involved. It's a process, and the process will yield an outcome. And that process costs a certain sum of money. And sometimes you show up with an outcome. Sometimes you show up with not. So I think rationalizing that it needs to be cost-driven um, decision needs to be a little, because it's not like a fundamental part of your sort of healthcare system that you actually go on the other side and something that was fundamentally wrong with you actually becomes better. And you, mm-hmm. you, then, and you come out infertile on one side and and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then you come out fertile on the other, on the other side. Um, so I think that just to double click on the, on the money part. I think the reality is when it comes to fertility, access is genuinely everything. And for those who are struggling to conceive, um, the most fortunate always win. That's that's sort of how the game is played today, and I don't think um, I don't think it's it's a I don't think it's a clinic problem per se only because it's very simple, right? The the clinic is a for profit institution that was set up in order to return value for their shareholders, and they're very um, they're incentivized the right way, and, and no one and they should be, right? I think in healthcare. Two things usually happen in order to have any impact on the pricing or accessibility. You either have government funding, and that usually dictates sort of price takers, or you have insurance companies, and those are the people that actually force the providers um, to rationalize cost. And fertility has neither. There is not sufficient public funding, and there is no insurance companies that are coming in order to say to the providers, here's what you need to do. and the first thing that we have to change is sort of where where we also bring a lot of sort of to that equation is we're, we're telling people that if you look at the people who need fertility treatment versus the people who access it, the number is 15% of people will need a fertility treatment of sort and the people who access it less than 2%. If you as a provider provide the service for X and you lowered that number by 50%, but you increase the demand by 50%, no one touches that revenue of yours, right? It's still the same amount of money that you make. It's still the same amount of growth that you make. And if you make it cheaper and more accessible, you actually open up for more people that are today priced out. And then the way we should do this is by really understanding how much we can open a market today that's not available for people to go through treatment. And what is the role of a 
of, a, of an insurance company that comes in and spread the risk of the people that are potentially will have a problem of sort. And I, and I kind of like what um, Megan and Whitney were saying about, had you known 10 years ago that this might be a problem, it creates so much optionality for you and how to fund it. And if you really take control and agency over your reproductive health when you actually don't need it, like had we known, and I'm, I'm, I'm an Alex Camp that we were fortunate enough that we've actually, it, it, it's obviously a huge cost, but it didn't get us into debt or it didn't get us into any financial strain. But had you known 10 years ago that this will affect one in six, right? Which is like one of this, um, um, what one in six people will have a problem of sorts that it could cost 10 or 15 grand. And you start really thinking about how you insure that risk, how you create optionality, how you save for what that treatment is going to cost. Then you treat it like, like a pension. Then you treat it like any form of things that will happen in the future eventually. Um, but to the, to the 20% of us that will have a problem of any sort, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be covered. That was a really long, like long answer to tell you the solution is for any healthcare, the government either shows up and say, I'm picking the tab, or private healthcare shows up and said, we're going to spread this on a larger pool. And mm. by spreading it on a larger pool, we're going to make the cost less. And we're going to open a market for a bigger cohort of people. And hence, providers are okay with that. Now, do you, um, I mean, you turned your experience of this into a business. Do you want to kind of tell us a little bit about that? Tell us where the kind of, Oh, the moment where you thought, oh, do you know what? I'm I'm going to try and do something about this. It's a you know, it's a big leap to take. Talk to us about that a little bit, and what what the kind of the way that you're trying to help people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that I never really had an aha moment. It was just a. It was obviously a function of the of the how fair and hard the process of becoming a parent was, mm. and you have to go through it firsthand. And you don't need to be like you don't need to be a genius to kind of realize that this is hardly unfair and it's really difficult and it just cannot exist in its current form. This needs to be better. Right. And I quote, I, I quote, uh, I quote a clinic that we're working with when, when they say, like, listen, there might be a world where IVF might not be delightful, but it needed not to be that bad. Mm-hmm. And if we really try to redesign that experience um, with the patient in mind, I think there is so much value we can create personally um, after the after all the failed rounds that we're going through, my frustration was very simple. It was like no one threw out the treatment, would, and that that to, to the to the opaqueness piece that Alex was leading was I had no visibility into what are we doing, till when, and at some point it's like why, and if you just don't have that basic understanding in order to manage your expectations around the outcome. And that emotional lottery comes in, and obviously the pain is, is is acutely physical on the woman. It's emotional on both. It's financial on both. It just compounds, right? And then the fact that you're doing this round after and down, and you're genuinely playing this emotional lottery, it just does not make any sense. And this really, really is one of those the most broken processes. That my 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 takeaway: this has to be better, like fundamentally better. Mm. I think where we differed from most in terms of actual starting Gaia, was we started from a very simple premise that parenthood should not be, parenthood is a basic human right and not a luxury good. And everyone deserves the chance to start a family regardless of their financial situation in life. And because the treatments are designed in a financially exclusive manner, our job was to make sure that we reduce the biggest barrier to family formation, which is really cost. And because of our weird relationship with money, we never really acknowledge that money is the biggest barrier to how we plan 
forming a family. And we really started from a place where what data can we get in order to guide better decision making re- with regards to that quote unquote journey? And how can we allow more people to pursue IVF without the financial unknown by actually underwriting the risk, quote unquote, I, I know we all hate the world, but um, by underwriting the risk of failure. How I'm g- we're going to be wrapping this up soon. And I want to ask you guys for a little bit of advice for everyone that's listening. And obviously your advice will come to different groups of people, but each of you, if you can kind of have a think about what would that advice be to someone that's listening to this now thinking, how, how am I going to make this happen? Let's start with Megan and Whitney. Well, hopefully after April, 2023, it'll be all very easy. (laughs) Um, And I think from our perspective for LGBTQ plus people, especially a same sex female couple, it is where do I start? And our, well, we have a few answers, but mainly one is, you know, go to your GP. You can get some tests done to discover where your fertility issues are at, if you're looking good or not. Um, but AMH levels, which is your like egg hormone level, you do have to do privately. That's not on the NHS. Um, and that's kind of a good starting point, we'd say, especially if you're looking at who might carry, whose eggs might you use. You kind of need to figure that one out to then figure out what other steps you're going to take. Um, another option is figuring out where you're going to get your sperm donor from because um, we highly recommend um, going through sperm banks because it's medically screened and you're legally protected but obviously if you have someone that you know then great but highly recommend mm. that you do not go find someone online but if that's what you want to do then fine <laughs> but you know people do get preyed upon especially women that are vulnerable um, and they may be forced to have mm. sex they say the natural way which is obviously rape um so yeah we just kind of would suggest looking into those areas first and fingers crossed that we won't have to worry about this um in a few months time indeed i think that's solid solid advice um nada i think i imagine some of your advice might be come to me but um otherwise let's hear yours i i it's a self-serving but it, it is the truth it's um plan and protect um, you know, I'll share with you something. We just we just ran this because we have a lot of data of, of uh, people who underwent fertility treatments. Um, for the last data set or the, the last year that we have data in the UK from 1,711 more babies, that's 1,711 more IVF babies would have been born if all patients did one more cycle of IVF. Imagine they know that up front. So how do you have that data? What, we, what, where, how did you figure that out? Um, so we, what we do is we look at we look at the data of the we look at the people we track um, essentially embryo IDs or the women that stopped at two, women that stopped at three, women that stopped at four, and what we do is we right. synthetically create that they've actually added one more cycle, and then we correlate the, success, the new success rate with the old success rate. So every every woman who stopped at from one to five, we just add one more cycle, and then we see the new success rate vis-a-vis um, what has been done. In Seventeen in any in, in one year. 1,700 more IVF babies would have been born. But obviously when they stop, they don't know that one more cycle will enhance their success rate by X percent. And I think where my advice to people is to really, it's the right to know, and yeah. it, it, should be, it really should be a utility and not a feature um, where they actually know what are their chances. And, and, and no one is going to predict fertility with 100% accuracy because it never is the case. But also like zero is not the other solution. Somewhere along the line, there are conversations that they should have. And we're trying to do that. We're trying to shed that light on people early in the journey. And it's also not only for um, the probability of having a a child or not. 
Um, it's also to manage expectations, which is equally important when you're actually managing the emotional um, roller coaster that you're about to enter, right? Which is like, I want to know what is the likelihood of me walking away with a child. Um, so the advice is to really, um, really, really press your provider, press whoever you're working with. Um, and if you came through us, also press us on understanding um, what are the levers that contribute to your success or potentially having a child so that you manage expectation and you financially plan, which is equally important. Yeah. Brilliant. That's great advice. Thank you, Nada. Just so we know, so we can tell our followers and anyone that's listening that is LGBTQ+, do your services apply to those um, regardless of sexual orientation? 100%. Brilliant news, because obviously not everyone can wait until April 2023 to embark on their baby journey. So <laughs> exactly. we'll be sending them your way then. <laughs> we definitely would not have invited you on. If it... <laughs> well, we've heard there are lots of like, you know, it's a different, but payment plans that do, you know, people... Yeah. Imagine, they don't uh, imagine the awkwardness if I, if I answer Yeah, it I'm like, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Alex, what, what's your advice to people listening? So it's going to sound like I'm repeating myself, which I am in part. But my advice, especially to those people that think, I just can't talk about money. I find it too awkward. It brings up too many feelings of shame. Um, I've never spoke about money with my friends before. So why am I going to start now, especially about this really difficult conversation, you know, fertility? So my advice is to go and have those awkward conversations and sit with the awkwardness. You'll want to shut down the conversation really, really quickly because it'll spike all these feelings. And instead, ask people how much they spent. Ask them how they paid for it. Ask them, do they have any advice? What, what you know, they wish they knew about money and IVF before they began their process that perhaps you could take on. Um, so yeah, go and have an awkward conversation about money with people you know not just in the forums, kind of. Brilliant. Go forth, people. Well, listen, thank you, guys. That was all fantastic advice for people listening. And also, it's brilliant for you to share your journeys with us. We really appreciate it. And let's hope that this helps people um, with the money situation. It is, is a tricky one. And now it's time for... IVF. Oh, what the earth? What the earth? What the earth? And this is a financial special. So we actually, um, we did a little Insta shout out for your financial questions, didn't we, Emma? We did, yes. And um, this seems like a question that everyone needs the answer to. Yes, it's kind of the, I mean, it's the obvious one, but also probably one of the most important ones, which is what are the hidden costs and how do you ascertain the real cost of IVF? Uh, it's a question you're asking yourself, Emma. Um, I feel like it's a how long is a piece of string question because mm, like yeah, who yeah. fucking knows it, is your womb lining going to disintegrate like mine does like who knows <laughs> oh god mate that's not let's not jinx it um, yeah it's it is a hard one it shouldn't be that hard but it is uh, so hopefully uh, Lucy can give us a nice answer hey everyone it's Lucy from Gaia I've spent over a year looking into the cost of IVF treatment across the UK, and I didn't realize how many hidden costs there are in an IVF cycle that people don't realize until you pull out your credit card the day that the clinic asks for payment. The advertised average price of a standard fresh cycle across all UK clinics is £4,000. But in reality, the cost of a fresh standard IVF cycle is generally between 6,000 and 7,000 pounds. There is a significant difference between the price of an IVF treatment 
and the cost that people end up paying. So keep that in mind. Some treatments that might be hidden from that base cost include initial fertility assessments, which can be around 250 to 500 pounds, even more with some additional tests. A day five blastocyst culture can sometimes not be included in that base price, and that can be another 400 pounds on top. Even sedation for egg collection or embryo freezing and storage of additional embryos are oftentimes not included. And the big one is medication, which can range from 1,000 to even 3,000 or more pounds on top of your IVF treatment cost. These are all treatments to be aware of when people are budgeting for an IVF cycle, as priceless can be deceiving. And if you ever want to chat for more information, feel free to email me at lucy at gaia.family. great yeah do you feel like you've learned a lot i feel like i've learned a lot and if i do decide to do ivf again i feel better prepared sweet well we will see you for our usual offering on tuesday yeah see you soon guys Do you know another reason we like Gaia? It allows you to pay for your successful IVF round at 0% interest over 12 months. I mean, I certainly can't find £5,000 down the back of the couch, so that's cool. Yeah, man. When I finally jump off the fence and do IVF again, I'm going to speak to these guys for sure. Probably my favourite Gaia fact is that they give you 12 complimentary sessions with a counsellor, access to a medical embryologist and 24-7 membership support. No more 3am Google sessions. Thanks, Gaia. Visit www.gaiafamily.com to find out more.